If you're new with us, I'm Chuck Hamilton, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited to share the word with you today. <clears throat> I was actually uh, kind of brooding over this word and thinking about where I was going and had some direction this week and was kind of just feeling struggling where I was at. My wife just spoke a word to me and it just freed me and, and so... If this word is any good, it will be because of my wife's sensitivity to the Lord. You know, we oftentimes talk about one another in the Christian faith as warriors. Is that true? Do you feel like a warrior? Oh, that wasn't as resounding. Do you feel like a warrior? You should feel like a warrior. Young people, do you feel like a warrior? You feel like you're called to something above yourself? Something greater than yourself? A destiny that God has for you. And he has that for his body. And so we're going to take a look at that today. We're going to take a look at that through the eyes of authority, okay? If we are commissioned to be warriors, then that means that there's a higher authority above us. And that if we embrace that commission, then we are, we are committing to that. And we're committing to that, the, the truths of that, uh, the foundation of that. And, and committing our lives to that. When I went in the military, I had to take an oath saying that I would honor my country, that I would respect my country, and that I would protect our country to my death. <clears throat> Is the Christian faith any less than that? Is the challenge that before us any less than that? <clears throat> and I don't think it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me just give you a couple scriptures for a foundation. When we think about authority, you know, if we're going to move and do something in the kingdom of God, which God had called us all to, then we need to, to recognize that we've been commissioned. Let me just quickly give you a couple scriptures. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, it says, All authority uh, has been given to me in heaven and earth. That was the Lord Jesus speaking. In Matthew 10, he said to his disciples, When he called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast out, cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Luke 9, 1 says, <clears throat> He called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons <clears throat> to cure diseases. In these, these verses, the word authority is exosia. And that word means this in kind of a, a definition. It means privilege. It means superhuman control. It means delegated influence. You and I have delegated influence. We have supernatural abilities to do what God has called us to do. And the same word means authority, jurisdiction, liberty, power, right, strength. And so what the Lord calls us to do, whatever that de- the definition of that commission is for your life... And your commission is different from mine in the sense that God has an assignment for each of us. Each of us have gifts and callings to be used in the kingdom to represent the king and to tell the good news and to bring the atmosphere of heaven to wherever we we tread and walk in, in that influence that he gave us. So wherever we go, we have that influence. <clears throat> Turn your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 7. We're going to take a look at the centurion for a moment, and then we're going to talk about three types of authority that God has given us. Luke chapter 7, this is the story of the centurion. 
It's interesting in the scripture, there are three different centurions mentioned, and each one of them are mentioned uh, in the vein of very positive uh, men of integrity, humble men, uh, men of righteousness. Um, and so this is one of those, those occasions. Beginning in verse 1, Now when he concluded all his sayings to the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and was ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, speaking, sending him to Jesus, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. In other words, the one who had commissioned him to come and bring this message uh, to the Lord, that he was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter my roof, under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to to come to you. But say the word, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, were sent, returning to the house, found the servant who had been sick. In this example, we have this centurion, who was a man, he was a military man. Uh, in our terminology, he would probably be uh, a junior officer. He was over 100 men. And this man was obviously well-respected by some of the Jewish leaders. He was a Gentile. And uh, <clears throat> it's interesting as we think about a centurion, uh, Polybius, uh, who was a historian, wrote some guidelines of what they, they con- considered when they looked for a man to be in this position of authority. A uh, centurion was not to be a thrill seeker, <clears throat> but he was to be a commander. Supposed to be steady in action or reliable. He was not to rush into a fight. And when hard-pressed to hold his ground, and if necessary, to die at his post. And so as we look at this man, the centurion was a very spiritual man, it appears like. It's interesting that uh, this centurion had a great relationship with some of these Jews. In fact, such a great relationship that he was able to send them with a message to the Lord and say, would you take this message? My, My servant is sick. And uh, I, I have this trust and belief that the Lord can heal him. Now, it's interesting. I want you to think for a moment. In that society and in that culture, slaves really had no identity at all. In fact, a slave owner literally owned his slave. He was a piece of property. In fact, he was defined as being a living tool that the slave owner could use. Now, <clears throat> When, when that slave was either infirmed or old, they would just simply cast them aside with no second thought. Not our centurion. 
Our centurion, it says that he loved this slave, that he had a relationship with him, and he was concerned about him. And so it was out of this compassion that he wanted the Lord to heal him and to touch his life. It was almost as if he was going to lose a child or a son. And he wanted to change that because of his relationship with him and his compassion. And this is what I want you to see. When he came to the Lord, first he had an understanding and a respect for the Lord. Because he said to the Lord, he said, I'm not worthy that you would come to my house. I'm not even worthy to come to you. What was he saying in that? He wasn't talking about his own self-worth. He was talking about he knew and understand the Jewish law and that it was, it was forbidden under the law for Jesus or for any Jew to go into the house or the home of a Gentile. And so it was out of respect that he said what he said. And so he said to, to the Lord, he said, you don't need to come. In fact, I'm not even worthy to come to you. He said, I don't want to affect you in a negative way because of the law. But listen to what he says. He said, For I am also a man placed under authority. And having soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes, and another one to come, and all those things. This centurion understood authority. He was under authority. He understood authority. And he exercised authority. And in in that understanding of his own life, he was able to recognize who Jesus was. He was able to recognize that he was willing to put himself under his authority to trust him, to be able to move in in the testimonies he had heard that Jesus was able to be and have the answer for his sick servant. And so it's been said that in order to have authority, you need to be under authority doesn't matter where we're at in life, whatever God has called us to, whatever assignment he's given us, whatever mantle he's laid on our shoulders, we are under authority. Or we should be. If we're to truly understand and move in the authority God has given us, then we must be submitted and humble to his ultimate authority. And the centurion understood that. So as we think about the centurion's life, I want to talk to you about three types of authority. I'm going to talk to you first about relational authority. I'm going to talk to you about uh, positional authority. I'm going to talk to you about responsible authority. Turn your Bibles now to Luke 11. And in this passage, Jesus is with his disciples. And they they hear him pray. And... Out of that time of prayer, they, uh, they look to the Lord. And they have a question for him. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, and you're familiar with this. It came to pass as he was praying in a certain place. The disciples lived a life of prayer. They were active in the synagogue. They knew about prayer. They were with Jesus when he was praying. And it's interesting, coming out of this point, they said, when he sees praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. This was not unusual because oftentimes the rabbis, those they discipled, they would come and the disciple would give them a prayer for them to pray. Usually a short prayer, a brief prayer, but a prayer that they would pray. 
And the disciples heard Jesus praying, and they came to him, and they said, teach us to pray. What were they saying to him? I believe what they were saying was, Lord, there's something about your prayer life that's attractive to us. There's something about your prayer life that's different from what we see in the synagogue. It wasn't it wasn't rote prayers. It wasn't just simply memorized prayers. There was a life that was in his life, his prayer life, that they saw and desired. And, and then look what the Lord gives them. Lord, teach us to pray. And then verse 2, he said, and when you pray, and we're familiar with this, aren't we? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And we know that, hopefully, as a prayer. In fact, Mark Rutland, the, uh, the author, <clears throat> has written a book called The 23-Second Prayer. And it's about the Lord's Prayer and his challenges to men. Men, it seems, sometimes struggle with public prayer. I know even to this day, if I ask my sons to pray a blessing, they say, no, Dad, you go ahead and pray. And oftentimes, men are reticent to lift their voice in, in public places to pray. Now, why is that? I think it might be, in, in, in total honesty, I think it might be simply because sometimes our wives are so given to prayer and they're such great prayer warriors. Where is Beth? If you've ever heard Beth pray, I don't even like to pray around Beth. Beth prays in poetry. She prays with an elegance that is absolutely... I find myself, when I'm with Beth in prayer, I just want to listen to her pray. There, there is something about her and her relationship with the Lord that is captivating. And she, you know, most women, and I say this with great respect, pray in volumes. Where we as men, sometimes we have a hard time getting out just a simple blessing or, or praying a blessing over the food. And Mark Rutland's heart is that, that we could take the Lord's friend. He says to men, he said, this is a 23 second prayer. You can pray this any place you are. If your wife wants you to pray, begin to pray the Lord's prayer. And you can take a part of that where thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you can take that and expound on that or, or forgive us our, this day, our, our trespasses. And we can talk about forgiveness, but it's, a, it's if you will, it's a, it's a living prayer that we can expand on as men. So that's just a side note and a challenge to men. We can pray. <clears throat> Use it for a guideline. Pray God's word back to him. But here's what I want you to see. The disciples saw something in Jesus. And this prayer is a relational prayer. And if we are to have authority in the kingdom of God, we have to recognize that that authority begins with our relationship with the Heavenly Father. It's based on relationship with Him. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we manifest to those around us as Christians should be born and birthed out of our relationship with Him. In other words, our lives should shine with the presence and the hope of God in us. And it should shine forth to others around us. And this relational authority, <clears throat> we have to know who he is in order to understand who we are so we can be and do what he has called us to do. Beloved, it is far above you and I. God always sees the larger picture. He sees the, it's been said many times, he sees the, the end from the beginning because of the greater picture. And it's not about you or I. Although there is a, there's a wonderful mantle upon our lives, it's about Him. And how do we express that to those around us? How do we represent that 
to those around us, and it's born and based out of our understanding and personal revelation of who he is. And thus, that authority, that revelatory authority that we have is born and based out of our relationship with him. We can be the warriors he has called us to be because he's given us authority as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. And we represent the kingdom to all those around us. And so we have this this revelation authority. Our clarity of purpose is defined by our revelation of God's fatherhood in our lives. It's interesting as we come and think about this relational authority that we have. It really has to do with our needs and our desires. When I come, when I, I, I pray this prayer sometimes two or three times a day. And oftentimes, I've mentioned this, I, I oftentimes don't get past my father. And it's I don't say our, I say my father who art in heaven. And that begins my conversation with him. <clears throat> and when we think about the relational authority we have, it begins first with what, what are our wants and our desires and our needs. I come to my heavenly father for those things. And so in a sense, that part of the authority is a little bit, if you will, selfish. Because I love my time with him and I. I don't want to share that with anyone else. My wife and I don't spend a lot of time praying together. But we we pray together. We pray together in a regular way. But most times, it's not in this realm. It's in the next realm. It's positional authority. It's not relational authority. And so... When we pray, it's, it's, we're praying to our Father who art in heaven, who, who is exactly that. He is our Father. We recognize His fatherhood. And we recognize the goodness and the kindness of a good Father who wants the very best for His children. Uh, Bob mentioned it up here in his announcement that, that as parents, we want the very best for our children. That's our, the heart of our Father for you and I. He wants the very best. It doesn't matter what you're facing in life or what you're going through or what you've gone through. He has your best interest in mind. Now, I know and I realize realistically there are times where we come where we maybe question that a little bit. We say, Lord, what in the heaven's name are you doing? And we don't understand because his ways are higher than our ways. But we can know that as we recognize and, and love him in relational authority, he has always has always has our best interest in mind no matter what we face, no matter what we've gone through, doesn't matter, life or death, angels or principalities, things present, things past, nothing can separate us from the love of God with our Father. And that relational authority positions us for the other authorities that he challenges us to walk in. Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says that If a son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will you give him a serpent? And the answer to that is, of course, if my son asks me for bread or for fish, I'm going to give it to them. And it ends that those verses that if you being evil would do that for your children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give to us in our relationship with Him? And so out then, out of our relational authority, we have positional authority. Now, positional authority, oftentimes in the world, has to do with position or status or placement. That's not the positional authority I'm talking about here. Let me begin to read in verse 5 of this same chapter. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight 
and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on this journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give to him as many as he needs or whatever he needs. Now, let me point something out here. We often interpret this passage as being one of persistence. That we as, ch- we as God's children, we have to persist and we have to break through this persistence in order to get to God's favor. May I just say to you, it is important to have persistence, but that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is, it is not comparing this friend to God. It is making a contrast, if you will. It's not a comparison, it's a contrast. <clears throat> In other words, let me, let me set up the cultural setting for this for a moment. In that setting, in that cultural setting, the houses were smaller, usually one or two rooms. They didn't have, in my house, if you come to stay at my house, you would have your own bedroom. You would have a TV in the bedroom. You'd have a door, and you'd be in bed by yourself or with your wife if you were there. And you'd have a TV, and that would be your room. <clears throat> when you went into a Palestinian house, or a house in Judea or in, in this culture, there would be a common door, one door, the door would open up, there would be a common room there, there would be one elevated section where there was a coal stove or a small coal stove there where they cooked and so forth. And here's what's interesting. <clears throat> when they went to sleep at night, they brought the animals in, brought their chickens or their animals, whatever they were. I don't think they brought the larger, but they brought their smaller animals in. And then they slept together as a family, kind of all together. And so the father and mother would be there and the children would be around. They would sleep kind of close together. I'm not sure in that circumstance how they ever were able to conceive children, but somehow they did. But anyway, and so here's this setting. You know, the friend is asleep. He comes and knocks at the door. And also in that culture, the door... Whenever they arose in the morning, they would open the door, and the door would be open all day. When the door was open, then you had free access to the home, to come and to go, to come into their house. You didn't have to knock, you just came in. But when they closed the door, it meant that they were wanting privacy. They were, they were going to bed for the night or whatever, and they would close the door. It was the only time they would close the door. And so, in this account, Jesus is giving this person comes who has a friend and, and who's come to them. And he has nothing to offer them. And you need to understand, in the Middle East, when you were the host, it was your responsibility to provide for them. Now, you just didn't just give them townhouse crackers and a glass of water. You had to prepare, in a sense, a very worthy meal for them. And this person was caught off guard. They had nothing to offer. And so he went and knocked at this door. <clears throat> and the homeowner didn't want to get up, I can't imagine, because, you know... Uh, Kids were all around. He didn't want to wake the kids up. The animals were there. He didn't want the roosters crowing at midnight and all those things. And he probably tried to ignore it at first, but the person kept knocking persistently to get in. And he finally got up and opened the door to him. Now, again, it's a contrast, not a comparison. But here's the point, that this is a picture of one who stands in intercession for another one. This person had a friend who was in need. 
His other friend had an answer. He thought he had an answer, so he went to that friend. Positional authority is a picture of intercession where we, when we intercede and we we take the authority God has given us, where we take those ones. See, I I answer my needs and, and my wants and my desires in my relational authority with the Father. But when I'm praying or interceding for one of my friends or one of you or whomever, our leadership team, then I'm bringing my friends and I'm taking them into the presence of God. And it's out, of, it's out of positional authority that I use my position as the Son of God and I bring whomever it is. And I pray for Tom and Julie's business or I pray for, for Mike or I pray for whomever. I pray for, for others. We bring our friends and we intercede for them and we exercise the authority God has given us to stand in the gap. And the picture of that is a positional authority that God has given us. <clears throat> It's interesting in this, this positional authority that we can affect the lives of others as we cover them, as we pray for them, as we stand with them. And we use the authority God has given us in prayer. Now, <clears throat> the third type of authority is responsible authority. Now, let me just say this. This area is a, is a wide open. I could write a book on this area. I'm going to just touch on one specific area today, okay? So when we think about responsible authority, we're thinking about, you know, how we are responsible with what God has given us, the gifts, the talents, the responsibility, okay? Uh, I base this truth on this scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. It says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Let me go back. Did you catch this one word? Give no offense to anyone. Don't be offensive to anyone. So as we think about responsible authority... It's talking about our position and being in healthy relationship with one another and what it takes to maintain healthy relationships. It's interesting. We know that when the scriptures were first given, there weren't chapter and verse breakdowns. And so that, we broke that down. That's the last verse in 1 Corinthians 10. But listen to what uh, chapter 11, the very first verse says. It says, Paul's writing again. He just said this, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jew or Gentile or to the church of God. But I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. And then chapter 11 says this, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Paul was bold enough to say, follow the pattern of my life. And as I represent Christ, or as I imitate Christ, or as I reflect Him, you go ahead and do the same thing. Are we bold enough to take that stance and go to somebody and say, look, you can imitate my life. Because I seek to follow Him. And I think we can do that. And I think in healthy relationships, we should do that. And I think in healthy relationships, we recognize that that there are times when we do stumble. But the ultimate goal is to reflect him and to allow others to imitate his life in our lives. 
And that's a tremendous responsibility that we have. <clears throat> so we're going we're gonna to close with this scripture. Turn your Bibles to Colossians. <clears throat> I'm going to spend the next uh, 10 minutes or so um, expounding on this. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, as the elect of God, the elect just simply means that you are chosen. Chosen in a special way for a special assignment by the God who created you. So he's speaking to the Christians, to the believers here. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Now, as I, as I read this, and, and this is a preparation as we're about to take communion here in a few minutes. <clears throat> as I read this, I want you to think about the words I'm saying. And I want you to think about what are the areas that I need to grow in. I'm going to mention just one word out of this. I'm going to focus on that. But listen to what he says. Put on tender mercies. Where do you get tender mercies at? Can anybody tell me? Where? From the Lord. It says in Psalm 103, he crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercy. What he gives to us, we give away. I don't deserve tender mercy and loving kindness. But he's given, he's he's crowned us with that. And so he says, put on tender mercies. Put on kindness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bearing with one another. Getting serious now, folks. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above these things, put on love, which is the bond of protection, of perfection. Put on the bond of perfection. Let me talk to you for just a couple minutes about forgiveness. There are two different words here uh, where it's talking about forgiveness. In fact, I'm going to go out on the limb just a moment. I'm going to set up a scenario so we can have a human factor to this. So you can't, you can't separate this from the human factor. This is a hypothetical, okay? So let's say we have a husband and a wife. Married, living relatively happy. And the husband, I want to say this the right way, whether seduced or chooses to, has an affair with another woman. After he has the affair, he's broken and contrite, and he goes to his spouse, he goes to his wife, confesses his sin, asks for forgiveness. What should she do? Somebody in their heart just said she should shoot him. What should she do? I mean, this is, this is the reality of life. This happens to Christians. These things that blindside us and seek to rob us of our destiny and rob us of our life as we know it, it happens. It's, it's, the, it's the mud of life that happens. In our scenario, this husband is broken and contrite and he wants to receive forgiveness. 
the wife who has been violated with the breaking of trust and the violation of their covenant has a decision to make. What will she do? What would you do? Reverse it around. If you're a man and it happened in the reverse direction, what would you do? And I know that it's hard to think about this in realistic terms because we don't want to think about this. We don't want to think about any kind of a scenario like this. But, beloved, and I don't wish this on anybody, but I've lived long enough to know that these things happen in the body of Christ. So forgiveness, why? Let me give you some reasons why the Lord says to forgive. It releases another from an offense, refusing to enact the justness of the penalty that they deserve. You see, it it refuses to institute anger or hatred or those emotions in order to bring about vengeance. It's a hard thing to understand that we need to trust God in the end. He will balance the scales of justice. He will care for these issues. But what's our stance to be? We need to release another from their offense, refusing to enact the penalty that we feel they deserve, refusing to sustain and to fuel the cause of the offense. Refusing to allow that offense, and in my first notes, I first put this, I said refusing to allow the offense to affect the relationship. I actually changed that this morning, and I do that. But anyway, I said refusing to allow the offense to destroy the relationship. And I want you to know that the scenario I gave you, if that happened, it takes a supernatural act of God to restore and to bring back together. And it can happen. And it will happen whenever there is a fertile heart, two fertile hearts that the Lord can touch and work in the midst of. This forgiveness releases one from a sense of unresolved guilt It restores a a clean conscience and it restores the relationship. To forgive is not to condone the sin as acceptable, to say it made no difference because it does make a difference. Or is it a license to repeat the offense? Forgiveness is a choice, it's a decision made to no longer hold an offense against another person or a group. And in those moments, as we think about the authority, whether it's relational authority or positional authority or here speaking about responsible authority, it's the decision that we make that's going to depend and determine the fruitfulness of our lives as we move forward. The decision we make will will determine the fruit of our life. And what makes the, 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 the hypothetical situation I gave, what makes it so volatile is that one person cannot overrule another person. 
If, they, if we're to overcome that kind of a situation, then it takes two people who are totally crushed by the Spirit of God to a place where they're broken and they cry out and say, God, help us. I want to see this restored. I've made a grave mistake. Somehow allow my wife to forgive me. Somehow allow my husband to forgive me. <clears throat> and when that is present, God can bring about the miraculous. Thank God. Thank God. And so when we extend that forgiveness, what does it do? <clears throat> for that person, whoever's been violated, for them to do that, it shows unconditional kindness. In my years of counseling, I've seen some situations like this. I've seen a lot of them turn negative. But I have seen some absolutely miraculous things where the hearts were prepared and where God was able to reach inside of them and touch them and cleanse them and heal them and restore them to fruitfulness and to lay, to place the dignity of their destiny back upon their shoulders where the enemy tried to take that mantle and receive and to, to rob them of it and where there are hearts that are willing to go in a supernatural way to, to call upon the power of God and say, God, in my humanness, I can't do this. But you know why we can forgive in this way? We can forgive in this way because God has forgiven us much. And if you don't have a revelation of how much God forgave you and how despicable our sin was, then you will never to be able to forgive somebody else who has come against you. It's only by a revelation of understanding what he did in my heart that I could, it, can forgive and how we can forgive by understanding the great sacrifice that he did for us and provided for us and forgave us that we might be who we are in the kingdom of God. And it's only by that, that revelation of understanding that. <clears throat> Even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. That word forgave there, the root word is charis. It's where we get the word grace. It takes God's grace to do that. We need that grace because we all fall short. In order to, to walk in the the relational authority God gives us and the positional authority he's challenged us to as warriors to put on the mantle. <clears throat> we need the charis grace, the forgiveness to walk in that. <clears throat> if you're struggling in, in your own mind, in your heart right now, you're thinking about an instance. You're thinking about a circumstance that God is, is pointing out to you that you need to forgive. And you're saying, I can't forgive. You're saying, I can't do that. I can't do it. You need to throw yourself on his mercy and say, Lord, help me to do that. Because unforgiveness, unforg if I withhold unforgiveness from someone, it is like drinking poison and expecting them to die. That's how critical the issue is. And so may we receive that admonition today if there's anything in our lives, if there's any area in our lives, we need to consider that and say, Lord, what do I do with this? <clears throat> Amen. I'd like the ushers to come.
We're going to pass the communion elements. And as they pass the elements, it's going to take a few minutes. I want you just simply to sit in quietness and just simply sit before the Lord. Just be certain your heart is clear. Listen for the voice of the Lord. If there's anything that um, you have not forgiven. I had a situation not very long ago. I felt like I was wronged by another person. I, I callously said, Lord, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. I've forgiven, I've forgiven. I went in a situation period of time after that, a week or two after that. I saw this person. And the Lord rebuked me. He rebuked me out of my response. I saw that person and I really cringed a little bit. I cringed and the Lord said, did you see what you did? I knew what I had done. He said, you haven't forgiven. I thought that I had forgiven. But I had not. And I repented before the Lord. My heart was broken. Because I didn't want to not forgive. thought that I had. But the Lord knew there was still a bitterness in my heart. <clears throat> so let's just be still before the Lord and listen to his voice. Our Lord, in that day, you took the bread with your disciples, Lord, and you you broke it, Lord. <clears throat> you said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. You took the cup, Lord, and you blessed it. You said, this is the new covenant of my blood, shed for you for the remission of sins. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, We thank you, Lord, that there's no greater joy than knowing, Lord, that we are forgiven. There's no greater joy than living in the land that's empty of condemnation and there is no shame present, Lord. It's a precious and powerful place to be, Lord, and we're thankful for it today. And, Lord, there's also no greater feeling than to know that we're not withholding forgiveness from another. That in by doing, and when we do that, Lord, we know that uh, we're hindering them and we're hindering the work that you want to do in their lives, so, Lord. So may we be a people, Lord, as we partake today and celebrate the gift of forgiveness to us, Lord. May we be able to celebrate both your forgiveness in our lives and, Lord, the beauty and the wonders and the power of forgiving one another, Lord, our offenses. Thank you for that, Lord. In your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Let's partake together as we celebrate.
if you'll just pass your cups to the center aisle and to the outer aisles, aisles the ushers will pick those up. <clears throat> Let's stand together. I'm going to invite the ministry team to come up. If you, you need personal prayer, if there's any area you need someone to agree with you, <clears throat> just want to invite you to do that. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us as your children, Lord, with the mantle of authority. You've called us, Lord, into the fray, O Lord. You've called us to do battle, Lord. In Ephesians, it says we are to stand against the wiles of of the devil. We are to stand with the armor of God. And in so doing, we are to stand completely, Lord, in the power and the authority that the Lord Jesus has given us, O Lord. And so as we go today, I pray that there would be a fresh revelation, Lord, of the authority you've given us. There would be a definition in each of our lives, Lord, of of our sphere of influence, Lord, and the creative ways that we can share the good news with those around us. And most of all, Lord Jesus, we pray, O God, that you would bring us into, into places and situations of divine appointments, Lord, where we can touch others who are hurting, where we can extend forgiveness to those, Lord, who needed so badly what you've given to us, O God. And so, Lord, let us be salt. Let us be light in the earth as we go forth this week. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.